My name's Andrew. It's great that you can join us for church this morning. We're going to be continuing our time in 1 Samuel and be looking at uh, uh, chapter 18 in particular. Uh, but before we begin, I just want to say that Jesus is like coriander. Uh, now, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who love coriander and there are those who think it's the devil's lettuce. For that second type of person, you're probably feeling pretty grossed out that I've even mentioned the name. Uh, the world is polarized. Adele, she loves coriander, whereas my family, well, they just think that it is soap disguised as a herb. Two types of people in the world, coriander lovers and coriander haters. Uh, now, when it comes to Jesus, it's, it's the same. Uh, Jesus is like coriander. There are two types of people. There are those who love Jesus and those who are opposed to Jesus. And those are the only two options that we have. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There is no fence to sit on. So which one are you? Uh, do you love Jesus or are you opposed to him? Uh, well, today, as we come to 1 Samuel again, we're going to see these two responses. We're going to see these two responses side by side. We'll see a picture of what it is to reject him, to stand opposed to his kingship and his rule. And we're going to see a picture of what it is to love Jesus, to love him as God's promised king. Uh, a bit of a recap. I've been loving our time in 1 Samuel. Uh, and as we've gone each, on each week, uh, it's, it's reminded us uh, that the world uh, is not the way it ought to be. Uh, now, some weeks, the brokenness of the world feels kind of less existential and a whole lot more real. And this week's kind of been one of those weeks, hasn't it? The lockdown has kind of dragged on uh, and the news of that evil terrorist attack has filtered through. And we're really longing for God to do something about it. And, and the good news of the Bible is that God actually does have a plan to fix up this broken world. And central to his plan uh, that we see here in 1 Samuel is a king and his eternal kingdom. And so what the Old Testament and 1 Samuel is doing, it's preparing us to meet God's great king, Jesus, when he comes. And today we see two responses to God's promised king. We see a picture of love for the king, and we see a picture of rejection of the king. Uh, now in the story so far, Israel has kind of lurched from leadership crisis to leadership crisis, and they've been constantly harassed by their, Philistine, by their nemesis, the Philistines. And along the way, they asked for a God, a God to give them a king to rule over them. And there was nothing wrong with the request. There's nothing wrong with asking for a king. It was just that they asked for the wrong sort of king. They asked for a king like the nations. Uh, so Israel get what they ask for. They get God's, uh, they get, uh, God's prophet who, who anoints Saul as their first king. Saul, remember, he's Mr. Tall, Dark and Handsome. He's oh so good looking from the outside, but then he fails. And he fails because he refuses to listen to and obey God's word. And so God tells Saul that he's been rejected and another king will be chosen. And last week we saw just that. We saw that in secret, Samuel has anointed David as the Lord's chosen king. Now that's a secret that we know as readers of the story. And that's a secret that David and Samuel know. But no one else in the story knows that this has taken place. Shortly afterwards, David is in, uh, uh, takes on Goliath, he, uh, and he, uh, as he defeats Goliath, it only further confirms Saul's failure as their king. You see, remember, it was Saul who was supposed to go out and lead God's people into battle. He was supposed to go out and fight on their behalf, but instead Saul is off hiding in his tent. Uh, and David is the king in waiting. And David here, he does against Goliath what the king should, have do, should do. He rescues God's people from their enemy. 
Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at what happens next. We're going to see how people respond to David, the king in waiting. Uh, so now we're going to have our first Bible reading uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 57. Thanks. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he held it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Thanks for that. Uh, well, it seems here that there's two clear responses to David. Uh, almost everyone loves God's chosen king. Uh, Saul's own family, uh, his son Jonathan, uh, Saul's closest advisors, his attendants and his military officers. Look what it says there in verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Uh, the people all love David because he does what the king should do. And even though they don't know it yet, they're already beginning to honour David as though he was the king. Uh, Everyone loves God's chosen king except one, except Saul, the one who actually sits on the throne. Uh, See, in Saul, we get a picture of rejecting God's king. Saul hears everyone singing and dancing with joy because of David's victory, and he's fuming. Verse 8, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? See, Saul knows that David has single-handedly saved Israel from the Philistines. Saul is realizing that David is beginning to look more like a king than he is. And Saul, like most insecure leaders, rather than kind of being able to celebrate the success of a junior, he becomes jealous, he becomes angry and afraid. And so he begins to see David as his rival, his enemy, a threat to his throne. Uh, And from this point on in the story, Saul sets out to destroy David. And that's really what dominates the the rest of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul's ongoing rejection of God's anointed king. 
Uh, and this sort of rejection, it's how many choose to respond to God's king. See, Saul sees David as a rival, as a, as a threat to his place on the throne, as a, a challenger to his own glory and praise. And Saul refuses to get off his throne, both kind of literally and metaphorically. He refuses to humble himself before God's chosen king. He refused to let God's chosen one be his king. And Saul paints a picture for us for what's really going on when we reject God's chosen king. When we oppose his kingship over us. We See, we all like to be the ones who are in control. Uh, there's nothing quite as terrifying as, as having the feeling of not being in control. Like you're not in charge of your own destiny. And we also love the, the praise and glory that comes from doing it all ourselves. And so when a rival comes... When God's anointed king turns up and says, actually, I'm the one on the throne. Actually, I'll take it from here. Well, we fight to stay sitting there on the throne. We, we fight to keep the crown on our own head. And we look at God's eternal king and instead of seeing a rescuer, we see him as a threat. A threat to our autonomy, a threat to our happiness and our success. And so like Saul, we reject him. We reject God's chosen king. But there's a warning for us here too. Rejecting God's king has consequences. See, if we reject God's king, we need to realize that what we're doing is we're turning God into our enemy. You see, when, when, God, uh, made, uh, when, when Saul was anointed king a few chapters before, God poured out his spirit on him. And the spirit of God equipped him for his special role as the leader of God's people. But now that Saul has opposed God's chosen king, now, now that he's done that, he's become God's enemy. And part of the terrible judgment on Saul is that he's handed over by God to spiritual forces of evil. Have a look there in chapter 18, verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, I must admit, things get, kind of get a little bit funky here. You've probably got a bunch of questions that I'd be happy to clear up during the week, so put them on your comment card. Uh, but I think there's two things that are worth pointing out here. First, this episode with the evil spirit, it comes after Saul has rejected David. It comes after Saul has rejected God's anointed, and after he has made him his enemy. And so now that he's rejected God's anointed, he's experiencing God's judgment. The second thing to notice is that uh, the evil spirit, it's still under the sovereign control of God. The evil spirit is not free to roam as it wishes, but God has it on a short leash. Now there's more to say, uh, but for now, here's the thing to see. It's a picture of rejection. It's a picture of rejecting God's chosen king. And Saul, he refuses to give up the throne. And in doing so, he's made God his enemy. It's rejection that leads to God's judgment. But Saul's rejection of God's king here, it's contrasted with his son, Jonathan. In Jonathan, we actually get a picture of great love for the king. Uh, now, this would have to be the most uh, simple and profound definition of a Christian, wouldn't it? Someone who loves Jesus. God's anointed king. But what does it mean to love Jesus? I mean, in English, we can say, I love my wife, I love chocolate, I love my bike, I love my friend, I love my job, I love my country, I love my church, I love my dog. 
We can say all of those things and in each context, love simply means I feel positive in some way about the object. But we know there's a difference in intensity, don't we? We know there's a different way that the love is expressed in those different relationships. You see, I love my wife in a very different way to the way I love chocolate. Uh, sometimes love comes with obligations. Sometimes love is part of a relationship. Sometimes love demands a higher loyalty and allegiance than other loves. Now, one of the great problems with our culture and our language is we've dumbed down the word love. We use the one word for a whole bunch of different settings, and so it loses its nuance and it loses its different shades of meaning. Because not all loves are the same. So what do we mean when we speak about love for Jesus? What kind of love is that? What will it demand of me? How will it change me? How do I rightly express it and experience it? How will my love for Jesus impact on the other loves in my life? Well, here with Jonathan, we get a picture of that. See, Jonathan loves David, God's anointed. And that picture is a picture of the love that we ought to have for Jesus, God's eternal king. Now, come and have a look at, David's, uh, at Jonathan's love for David. Uh, as we begin to look at that, there's a few things, I think, that are worth clearing up. Uh, and by, by, by clearing up these things, I run the risk of giving a dumb idea too much oxygen. Uh, but there are some out there who want to suggest that there is a sexual dimension to the love that Jonathan and David have. Um, if you read the Bible, uh, that idea fails pretty quickly when we actually look closely at the text. The first is that pretty much everyone in this passage loves David. Saul is the only one. Uh, and for everyone who loves David, uh, Jonathan, Saul's attendants, uh, Michal, Saul's daughter, all of Israel will say they all love David. And it's the same word used to describe that love they have for David. And there's nothing sexual about that word. Uh, now, some people want to point to uh, verse 4 uh, in chapter 18, where Jonathan is taking off his robe and he's putting on David as though there is something erotic going on. But only half a chapter earlier, Saul took off his, his robe, took off his tunic and his armor, and he put it on David. You see, it's not a sex scene. It's, it's part of the picture of Saul divesting himself, abdicating his role as protector and king, and he puts it on a little boy. And so when Jonathan puts his robe on David, the same is happening again. David has been given Jonathan's place as heir to the throne. So let's look carefully at what the text actually says about their love. Uh, because it actually presents to us a, a brilliant picture of what it means to love God's chosen king. And there are three things I think that stand out. First, Jonathan loves David as a brother. Uh, in verse 1 it says, uh, Jonathan and David became one in spirit. Now that phrase, one in spirit, it's not very common in the Bible. Uh, if you jump back to Genesis chapter 44, we see it's described, uh, it's used to describe Jacob's love for his youngest son, Benjamin. Uh, and it's not describing a sexual relationship, but a, a deep loyalty of a family, uh, family relationship, family bonds. And, and we know this family loyalty, don't we? Uh, anyone who picks on your brother or sister, you, you're there to defend them. You've got their back. Now, I've never been super close with my older brother. I think we're just a little bit too close in age. But I distinctly remember one incident in primary school, a time in the playground where my older brother was being uh, picked on by some bigger kids. And I remember marching over there and stepping in and trying to defend him. 
Now, I was the smallest kid in my class back then, so it was probably a pretty comical sight as I kind of rushed in and came out swinging. But for some reason, brotherly love had kicked it in, and I almost acted out of instinct. Jonathan embraces David as a brother. That deep loyalty of a family bond. And it's, uh, it's not as though David has been welcomed at the family table. Uh, Jonathan's love and devotion is over and above Jonathan's love uh, Jonathan's love and devotion to David is over and above the love he has for his own family. His allegiance to David, it actually trumps Jonathan's other relationships, even his relationship with his father, as we'll see later on in chapter 20. And this is what it is to love God's anointed. It's to love him as a brother. To love him over all other people. But the second thing we see about uh, loving God's anointed is that uh, Jonathan loves David... As himself. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. He loved him as himself. Now, often our love for our family doesn't exceed our love for ourselves. Now, surely in the playground that day, I came to my brother's rescue, whatever help I was. Um, but literally, like that afternoon when we got home, we were playing basketball together, and I thought he was cheating. And when that was on, it was game on, right? The fight started. There was no love lost between me and my brother. But here with Jonathan and David, uh, this love is over and above the strong bonds of family love. Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. And really, that's to say, I'll be loyal to you even when it's going to cost me something. I'll put you ahead of everyone else, even ahead of myself. I'll love you even when it conflicts with my plans and my goals and my desires. And over the next few chapters uh, in 1 Samuel, you'll see time and time again that Jonathan, he risks his life for David. He puts himself in harm's way for David. He even becomes the focus of his father's rage for David's sake. In a few chapters time, uh, Saul will be hurling his javelin at, at Jonathan as well as David. But Jonathan does this. Because he loves God's king more than he loves himself. Now the third thing we see is that Jonathan is willing to love David as is willing to love David as his king. Now he's willing to love David and let David be his king. Now when it came to family, uh, Jonathan was the eldest son of the king. Uh, and you know what, how, uh, what it means to be the eldest son of the king, don't you? I mean, from a human perspective, to be the eldest son of the king is to be the one who is next in line for the throne. And so surely when, God, when Saul is gone, it, it, whose turn is it on the throne? Well, it's Jonathan's turn. You see, Jonathan, he's supposed to be the king in waiting, not David. You see, Jonathan here, he has, he has more to lose from David's rise in popularity than anyone else. He's, he's even got more to lose than Saul. If anyone should be seeing David as a threat or as an enemy, it should be Jonathan. But he loves David. He loves him as his king. He was willing to give up his claim to the throne out of his love for God's anointed. And that's what's actually going on there in verse 4 with the clothes. See, when Jonathan takes off his robe and his tunic, he's taking off his royal robe. And when Jonathan removed his sword and his bow and his belt, these weapons are, are the weapons that belong to the king in waiting. And what he's doing as he puts them on David, as he gives them to David, he's giving David his claim to the throne. 
It's as though he's handing him the keys to the palace. He's letting David take his place as next in line to be king. What's going on here is Jonathan is symbolically getting off the throne and he's letting David take his place. He's removing the crown from his own head and he's placing it on David's as God's chosen king. And this is a picture for us all of what it is to love God's chosen king. It's to love him as a brother, over and above all others. It's to love him as yourself, to put his will and his wishes first. And it's to love him as your king, to give him the throne, to give him the crown, as your Lord and your ruler. Now, to love someone like that, over and above all others, to put their wishes first, to give them the throne and the crown as your Lord and your ruler, that's a huge call. That is no small thing. So why would we love God's anointed like that? Why would we love Jesus like that? Why would that be the right response to him? Well, to put it simply, as God's chosen king, Jesus has loved us like this first. He has loved us as a brother. In the New Testament, it it, it talks about Jesus as our brother. Uh, And him being our brother, there's two sides to that coin. On one side, he knows as our brother exactly what we are going through. See, Jesus came down and he joined our human family. He chose to enter into our world of pain and suffering, to be bound by human limitations, to be restricted by time, to be tired from hard work, to, to needing food and rest and sleep. And he came down and he became one of us. He became our brother because he loved us. He wanted to be joined to us like brothers and sisters, no matter what the cost was. Which means we can come to him, to Jesus, our brother, confident that he knows us, that he gets us, that he knows what life is like, what it's like to be tempted, to suffer, to grieve, to be exhausted, to be rejected, to be betrayed, to be afraid, even to face the pain of death. He loved us enough to become our brother. But the other side of that coin is what he's done for us. You see, as our brother, he takes us to be with him as part of his heavenly family. Uh, Through his death, we are adopted by his heavenly father and we can call him our father. Uh, Now, some of you, you, you'll know the experience of being an only child for a time. But then your younger brothers and sisters came along and they came along and they were breaking your toys and they were ruining your craft and they were tearing your books and they started to take all the attention and everything that you enjoyed, well, now you must share it with them. And the worst thing about it was that your younger siblings never truly appreciated what you had to give up, what you did as you made space for them. You remember the day where the whole back seat of the car was yours, but now you're kind of squeezed up against the door as you make room for your younger brothers and sisters. But not Jesus. He delights to make room for us. He makes plenty of room for unworthy and ungrateful little brothers and sisters. And he delights to share with his brothers and sisters all the riches that belong to him. You see, Jesus has loved us more than he has loved himself. He has loved us more than he loves himself. His life, he laid it down for us. His glory, he set it aside for us. His status as God's son, he made himself a servant for us. See, on the cross, Jesus takes off his kingly robes and he puts them on us the least of his subjects. He takes off his righteousness, his right standing before his heavenly father, 
and the privileges that belong to him. And he, he gives those clothes to you and to me. And so when God now looks down on you, he is, he is filled. God is filled with the joy that he has as though he's looking at his own son, Jesus. And get this, Jesus doesn't just give us his uh, royal robes, but he puts on our clothes. He puts on our guilt and our sin and our shame, and he takes on himself the, the, the punishment for sin that we deserve. And so as we see Jesus as our brother, the more we understand how he has loved us, how he's loved us more than he loved himself. And the more we see him as our king, the more we realize that he has swapped places with us on the cross. That he has died in our place. So that we might be sons and daughters of God. So that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And the more who we see Jesus is, we won't be able to do anything but respond in love to him. We will count it a privilege to serve him. We'll consider it pure joy to be one of his people. To give our whole lives to him as our king. We're going to sing these words um, and I want us to use them as a prayer. As a prayer of love to God's anointed king. Uh, so we're about to sing and we're going to sing these words. We're going to sing, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honour you in all I do. I honour you. Let's pray and sing to Jesus, God's promised King, the one we love and the one who has loved us 